everyone. Welcome to episode 141 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We have a couple thank yous today that we're very excited about. We got a new Patreon sponsor. Absolutely. Thank you, Julie from Illinois for becoming our new Patreon sponsor. We really appreciate that. We really do. We want to remind people that you can become a Patreon sponsor. We're going to make a special little announcement to our Patreon sponsors in early November. We will make it here in early December. But if you want to get in on the news early, do become a Patreon sponsor. And we also got an individual donation from Jolene from Maine, who goes down in history, I think, for having the most beautiful stationery and the most beautiful writing. For sure. (laughs) Thank you, Jolene. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate it. And if you want to donate directly to the Book Cougars, just email us at bookcougars at gmail.com and we can let you know how to do that. So Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I'm currently reading A Blizzard of Polar Bears by Alice Henderson. I didn't have much reading time this last week, so I'm really looking forward to digging into this this weekend. This book is set in the Arctic area, Canadian Arctic area, and it deals with polar bears, as the title says. And we have an interview at the end of this episode with Alice Henderson. Yes. So this is book two in her Alex Carter series, and we'll talk more about that coming up. Indeed. But it's off to a great start. Right on. Yeah. Great cover, too. I'm reading The Body is Not an Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love by Sonia Renee Taylor. She's a poet and kind of a radical activist is how she's known. It has a beautiful cover. She's naked, beautiful, buxom woman on a bed that makes it look like she's a butterfly with flowers on her nipples. It's beautiful. Totally. And the foreword is by Ijeoma Aluo. Chris has read one of her books, if not more, I think. Yeah. Definitely one of them. And I just wanted to read the beginning in the foreword. This just gives you some insight into what the book's about. So this is um, Ijeoma saying, I was 11 the first time I heard someone voice concern over the size and shape of my body. One of my aunts had come to visit with my mother one evening for wine and conversation. Then I heard my aunt say to my mom, you know, you need to be careful with her. She's not chubby cute anymore. She's getting fat. And as Ijeoma goes on to say, it was the first time that she started to look at her body as maybe being a problem, you know? Yeah. And the point that Sonia Renee is trying to make in this book is that so much of how we feel about our bodies has to do with societal pressure. It doesn't come from us to start. One of the things she talks about is radical reflection, where the voice of doubt, shame, and guilt blaring in our heads is not our voice. It is a voice we have been given by a society steeped in shame. It is the outside voice. Our authentic voice, our inside voice, is the voice of radical self-love, which I think is just such a beautiful concept. I'm not very far into it. I've been reading it just a little bit every day, but I'm really excited that she made this book. This is the second edition and has an extra chapter at the end. I've been told that a workbook is coming out also. Oh, great. Yeah, so I'll keep my eye open for that. That's great. That's so important. Things that we people say to us when we're younger or that we overhear adults saying about us. It's so detrimental and it sticks with you for your entire life in some cases. It really does. And then also just the societal pressure we get from images that we see, right? Right. Sometimes it's not even spoken. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, especially Instagram, Facebook, Mm -hmm. they supposedly have done all this research that shows 
how Instagram and Facebook are harmful to young women and contributes to poor, not just poor body image, but harmful body image Mm -hmm. standards. And they're not releasing that research. I think for you and I, we grew up without social media and we still are bombarded with those images. But to be a young developing person, to see that every day has to be so hard. Yeah. And then the flip side that's different from when we were young is that there are now models that are showing all different kinds of body shapes and sizes. So there are some efforts being made and improvements being made in that attention being paid to it, Mm -hmm. which I'm happy about. Yeah. I'm just so thrilled that Sonia wrote this book and hopefully it'll get into the hands of lots of young people. For sure. And it is a great cover. Check it out, everybody. Yeah. Again, it's called The Body Is Not an Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love by Sonia Renee Taylor. I'm also listening to a book. It's no surprise to anyone that I am listening to Dracula (laughs) by Bram Stoker. I tend to revisit this novel this time of the year. It's an audible original production that I'm listening to, similar to Carmilla from, I think it was last episode I talked about. And it's really good. I'm enjoying it so much. I love the story. You could say I'm kind of obsessed with it. (laughs) But last episode, I kind of misspoke about Audible. I I said something to the effect of, you know, that you have to pay for it and that makes it problematic. But what I was trying to say that I didn't say very well is that it's the proprietary items that they have that are exclusive to Audible, like these productions. And I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, these are productions, they're paid actors who are doing them, you know, multiple people. So I don't see a problem with that. I think earlier, when it was a straight up novel, and it was proprietary, that was a challenge, just like the Amazon Kindle is a challenge for a lot of people, because it's proprietary code, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like EPUBs that you can read on anything. Right. I think the issue also is, I think for the Audible originals, you can only listen to them on Audible. Right. Right. Whereas if there's other audiobooks, you can listen to them on multiple platforms. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. 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 And I think, you know, that maybe one of the things that has gotten me used to this more is Netflix. Mm-hmm. You know, you can only watch a Netflix video on Netflix. Right. You have to be a subscriber. So, right. right. We are living in a time of the subscription. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to query some authors about it, because there are also authors who are writing specific Audible original content as well. Right. So there must be some reason that that's a good thing to do. Well, yeah, I think if you're a writer, you want people to read and hear your words. And if you get a really lucrative deal. Mm -hmm. Or any deal, maybe. Well, right, any deal. (laughs) Well, I guess we have somebody like Stephen King, he can pick and choose what he does, where he does it. And he does. Yeah. I know it's much different when you're an up and coming. Yeah. Anyway, Dracula, check it out. I love it. It's not everybody's cup of tea. But it is the spooky season. (laughs) (laughs) So, Emily, what have you just read? I finished this tiny little book, which... Shocker to everybody was actually a reread for me. I'm usually not much of a rereader. But it's a book called Being Perfect by Anna Quinlan. You can see I'm on a little bit of a, I don't know, self-love boost my personal self moment here. But it's a really sweet little book where she's talking about falling into the perfection trap and how she was the eldest daughter in a family where her mother died really young. And so she 
became the young woman who just did everything and did what people expected of her. And that it may look good on the outside, but you also need to feel good about what's happening in your life on the inside. I love Anna Quinlan so much. She's one of my favorite writers. So I thought I'd just read this one little couple sentences. But nothing important or meaningful or beautiful or interesting or great ever came out of imitations. What is really hard and really amazing is giving up on being perfect and beginning the work of becoming yourself. Amen, sister. And the book has a bunch of really cute little black and white images throughout. It's a really tiny, literally, you sit down and read it for 10, 15 minutes. And it was just the shot in the arm I needed on that particular day. I ran to the library and got it out. Again, Being Perfect by Anna Quinlan. Well, while Emily's on a self-love boost, I'm in horror mode. (laughs) (laughs) The novel I just finished reading is The Sundial by Shirley Jackson, which I really enjoyed. In the Goodreads, I wrote a sentence or two about it. It's intriguing. It's boring in parts, but really kind of a fascinating book. You're wondering what is going on with these people. It starts with a group of people coming home from a funeral One of their family members died. You have the patriarch of the family who was extremely wealthy. He became wealthy later in life. He had been very poor early days. And his wife is the matriarch. It was the patriarch's son who died. And so now his wife, the matriarch, is going to be inheriting everything. So the daughter-in-law, the patriarch, has taught her daughter to say, you know, Granny pushed Daddy down the stairs. (laughs) So, because he died, I guess, falling down the stairs. So you have that intrigue to begin with. And it's in this grand, huge mansion on a big estate and everything. And then the patriarch's daughter, Fanny, who is an aunt, is also one of the main characters. She propels the mystery or another mystery that's happening and brings in the supernatural in a way because she's out walking around the grounds with her niece, Fancy, and all of these weird things happen. Like she knew the land inside and out, but she gets lost. Things are kind of crumbling. The gardeners aren't taking care of things as well. Like they had a big maze and everything that's overgrown now. So she has some really scary moments. And there's moments with the statue that she thinks moves. You know, a statue in a maze. What can go wrong? Right. (laughs) So she comes home just distraught. And Fancy, the niece, says, I wasn't with you. I've been here. So you start to wonder, like, what's going on? Is it a supernatural thing? Is she just kind of going off a little bit? There are other characters involved, but I won't go into the great detail because it's a really complex novel. And you don't really know what's going on. The why is that when Fanny comes back, she has a vision. The end of the world is near, but that her dead father is going to protect them. So they have to barricade themselves in this huge mansion. Some other people come. The story is basically about a family. They're living on this huge estate. The estate has been made with like mathematical precision. But what's marring it is the sundial that's in the middle of the land there. You know, it just kind of looks like a blemish. So I think one of the things Shirley Jackson was playing with is the issue of time. As human beings, we can do everything we want to create all of these plans, but time is always going to get you. There's that. And then there's also 
what do you do with your time? As these people are planning on surviving the end of the world, one character makes a comment like, hmm, what would we be doing with our time if we weren't doing this? Another character says, well, who knows, something equally ridiculous probably. Not verbatim, but that's kind of the point, that like we do what we do with our time. And for some people it could seem ridiculous, and for others it's obviously a mission kind of thing. I don't know what the hell the point of the story was, but it had a lot to do with time. You know, it was written in 1958. So, you know, post-World War II, the beginning of the Cold War. So the stockpiling of goods to survive Armageddon was very much starting to take root in American culture. Isn't that also when they were making things that were supposed to save you time, like the TV dinner and stuff like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I wonder if she was influenced by something like that as well. Yeah, probably. I mean, and they had started like kitchen gadgets and everything in the 19th century. And I think it's just always been ramping up and going faster. But I mean, the 50s, there was still the tradition of stay at home moms and things like that. But then they were creating these things that were supposed to make their lives easier and faster, like canned food. (laughs) Right. All those good things so that you can clean and cook faster so that you can be presentable when your man came home from work to have dinner on the table at six, right? And be home when the kids got home from school with hot buttery cookies coming out that (laughs) you sliced up. I don't know. Slice and bake. Yeah. I don't know if those were there then. Don't, you know, quote me on that. I don't know either, but. It would be a novel I'd be curious to read more about just to see what people have to say. You know, this is written before The Haunting of Hill House. You can see what she's doing with this big house that's crumbling. There's some similarities that the man who built the home brings his wife to it and she dies either before she can live in it or just after they move in. So there are those similarities as well. Lots of death. Yeah, Mm -hmm. lots of death. Shirley Jackson, always nailing it. <laughs> that was the sundial. I just finished How to Get Into the Twin Palms by Carolina Wuklawiak. Um, This is a book I picked up when I was in Columbus, Ohio, visiting $2 Radio in their very cool bookstore. This is about a young woman who is of Polish descent. She actually, I think, arrived in America when she was really little, like three. So she considers herself a full-on American Her parents were immigrants. She's pretending to be Russian so she can get into the Twin Palms nightclub, which is a Russian nightclub. It's a really dark book, not in like a gory or gross or anything way. It's just maybe stark is the better word for it. Just sad. She's in this apartment that she kind of inherited living in because who she was living with moved out. She's unemployed and trying to find her way. And she ends up hooking up with a guy named Lev, who's a Russian, who she sees going in and out of the Twin Palms, which she can see from her apartment window. So it's an immigrant story in the sense of wanting to fit in, even though she doesn't really consider herself to be an immigrant. So that part's interesting. But Lev is a married man. He's, we're not sure, but maybe in the world of gangsters or drug dealing or selling used equipment. It's not really made clear, but not necessarily the best character for her to hang out with. It's written in these really tiny short chapters. And I didn't love it, but it was a page turner. It wasn't her writing. It was just stark. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I finished it. 
And I'm glad I did. And I think Wachlawiak is a fantastic writer. And she has a very interesting pedigree. She's the editor of The Believer magazine, which is one of my favorite magazines. She lives in LA and the book is very LA also, which is a city I've never been to, but I definitely felt like I got to visit it through this novel. That's all I have to say about it. How to Get Into the Twin Palms, Carolina Wachlawiak. Nice. That's kind of how I felt about the sundial, I guess. I couldn't stop reading it, but it wasn't like I was enjoying it totally. Although there's some really funny scenes, sarcastic, witty things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't love the experience of reading it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the better way to say I didn't want to not finish it, Mm -hmm. but I didn't love it. It's funny how some books will put down when we feel that way. There was obviously something about both of these books that were compelling enough for us to continue. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Did you read anything else? No, ma'am. No. I also read A Solitude of Wolverines by Alice Henderson. I have to say that was not my intention. (laughs) Chris had already read the book, so I took it home knowing we were going to interview Alice and thought, I'll just page through it, you know, and let Chris take the helm with the interview. And then I couldn't put it down. It was so good. I really love it. It's about Alex Carter, the wildlife biologist. Chris has already talked about the book, and we're going to talk to Alice Henderson, obviously, at the end of this. The only thing I wanted to say was that I learned a lot reading this book. Alice Henderson is a biologist and has spent time out in the field studying animals. And so you really believe the book And she uses words I didn't know, but not to an extreme amount. And I really like when I can learn something by reading, particularly in a novel, Mm -hmm. right? I just wanted to read because one of the things she talks about in the interview is how she names her books. And it has to do with usually the group designation for the animal. Wolverines don't have a group designation, she explained to us. And I remembered that that was actually in the book. So I thought I would just read that. So what is a group of wolverines called anyway? I mean, there's a pride of lions, a pod of whales, a herd of deer. What's it for a wolverine? Alex gave it some thought. Alex Carter is the protagonist in the story. Huh, I don't think there is a group name. They're so solitary. The only time they really hang out in a group is when the father or mother takes the kits out and shows them the ropes of surviving in the high country. Other than that, They spend their time alone. Okay, how about A Solitude of Wolverines? (laughs) And so that's how the name came to be. And as Chris said, she's reading A Blizzard of Polar Bears. So a blizzard is the group name for polar bears, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, totally. This is such a great series, everyone. And we had a great time talking with Alice. I know we say this a lot. We could talk with her forever, but it's quite true. Yeah. She's so fascinating, And she's written a lot of other things as well. This is just a new series that she has started, but check out her backlist. We'll put a link to her website so you can explore that. Yeah, for sure. Again, A Solitude of Wolverines by Alice Henderson. I loved it. (laughs) I'm so glad. I knew you would. (laughs) So what about Biblio Adventures, Chris? Did you find yourself adventuring? I did. I had two. Okay, so the first one, I've been going up to Mount Holyoke on Saturdays for a class. And afterwards, I've been exploring some of the local bookstores. The last two weeks, Gray Matter Books in Hadley, Massachusetts, is one I explored, finally, 
One of the things about New England that I find frustrating is that nothing stays open late. <laughs> I should say most things don't stay open late. There, there are a few things here and there, but bookstores tend to close by like 6 o'clock, other for, than Barnes & Noble. For listeners know. who may be new, Chris is from Chicago, so she's used to big city time. Yeah, you know, bookstores stay open until 11, so you can go out to dinner or a movie and still hit the bookstore or whatever. When we used to go out and do things like that regularly. <laughs> anyway, so I finally got to Gray Matter Books. Usually it's been closed when I've been up in that area. It's one of those cavernous used bookstores with all these little aisles and everything to explore. You just feel like you are on a biblio adventure when you're in this place because there's just so many areas to explore. So I was glad to do that. And they have the partner store that they opened in New Haven, Gray Matter Books, same name in New Haven. Which we've both been to, which is a great store also. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this one up in Massachusetts is much bigger and just so much fun. I had a really good time and found some fun treasures. Ooh. (laughs) And then I also went to Raven Used Books, and that's in Northampton, Massachusetts. They've been around since 1993, It's a smaller shop than Gray Matter, up in Massachusetts anyway, but really very well curated and very well organized and everything. It was a lot of fun. Is it a used bookstore? Yes. Okay. Both of them are used bookstores, right? Okay. Both used bookstores. I I thought I'd start with the used bookstores first. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And both stores, I had to have some restraint (laughs) because I'm I'm once again trying to do the, you know, one book in, one book out thing. Yeah. A lifelong pursuit. Yeah, just for safety reasons in the home. <laughs> <laughs> and is the Raven, is that a nod to Twain? Do you know, or was it just what they called it? You know what? I don't know the origin of the name, but I would think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's on the corner in downtown Northampton. So it was a Saturday evening, lots of activity going around. It's a college town. Yeah. So you get tons of good restaurants. And yeah. Tons of different ages and lots of diversity. I can't wait to go up there with you. Oh, my gosh. And the leaves are really starting to change big time around here. Yeah. I've heard Vermont's already past peak, but we're just starting here. Cool. Yeah. So I've really been enjoying that. I'm not sure what bookstore I'll hit this weekend, but well, we will be waiting and wondering. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to hit them, too, before the snow, you know, mm-hmm. because, you yeah. know, supposedly New England's going to have a cold, snowy winter. I don't know if that is true or not. I hope it is because I love snow. Cool. I do too. So I went on a couple of Biblio adventures, but they were watching television. So I'm just going to talk about them briefly. Oprah has been interviewing authors and I listened to her interview with Barack Obama about A Promised Land and then Matthew McConaughey about his book Green Lights, which I was so interested to hear about because it's been on the bestseller list since it came out. I'm also just interested in how Oprah talks to these folks. And one of the things that's cool is these were conversations that took place during the height of the pandemic. And she and her team developed this technology where she can make it look like they're actually sitting in chairs across from each other. So she and Obama look like they're sitting in these cushy chairs across from each other with a fire going in the middle, (laughs) which is pretty amazing, the power of technology. The one with Matthew McConaughey looked more like it was over Zoom, the way that they did the angles and things like that. But both of them were good conversations. I started Obama's book on audio and then didn't keep going with it, but I'd like to. I'm not sure if I'll listen to Matthew McConaughey's, even though I've heard it's wonderful. Does he read it? Yeah. Yeah, he has such a great voice. Yeah. 
A Time to Kill, if I could hear him say baby one more time. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, one of the questions that she did ask him is, John Grisham has come out with another book in Time to Kill. I can't remember what it's called, but it's this story told from a different perspective. And she put him on the spot and said, would you do the movie? Because Matthew McConaughey starred in A Time to Kill, which was based on the book by John Grisham. He hemmed and hawed and hedged. And because she said there was this big thing where he was caught, there was a picture on social media of Matthew McConaughey reading the book. And he said he would consider it. Right. <laughs> that's, as, that's as committed as he got to it. But So what about running for governor of Texas? Well, Did that come up? It's funny you should say that. That's part of why I have to admit that I listened to it, because I wanted to know, like, oh, I wonder if he got political at all in this conversation. And he really didn't. But then I saw some picture of him talking to someone recently, and he was being interviewed, and he had an American flag behind him. So I wonder if he's kind of starting to practice what it would mean to run for governor. Yeah, when they whip out the American flag, (laughs) watch out, people. (laughs) Do you have any upcoming jaunts? I have one on the calendar. Um, It is a Zoom event, another Dracula event. Surprise, surprise. This is called Out of the Archives, The Queer History of Dracula. It's through the History Project, which is an LGBTQ archive. It's an independent archive that collects all of New England queer history with kind of a focus on Boston because they're out of Boston. So it's an event through them and a ranger named Megan Michelle is the host of this event. And she's a ranger at Longfellow house, which is Washington's headquarters. It's a national historic site. So I'm just really curious about how these subjects are coming together Yeah. That event is October 28th at 7 p.m. Central Time. And we'll put a link in the show notes if you're interested in in registering for that. It's free and open. Right on. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. What about you? I have one through Politics and Prose down in D.C., a bookstore I still pine to go for. So I figure I can go to their virtual events. It's a thriller panel with Wiley Cash and Kimmy Cunningham Grant. I got to meet Wiley Cash down at the Asheville Booktopia you know, there's always one handsome debonair author in cowboy boots. He was the one down there. Great writer, too. He has a new book out called When Ghosts Come Home. And then Kimmy Cunningham Grant has a new book out called These Silent Woods. Mm-hmm. And I think both kind of involve some ghosts, which is why they're calling it a thriller panel. The other books I've read by Wiley Cash I wouldn't put them in the thriller category, so I was surprised to see that. But I'm really interested to hear these two authors talk. And Kimmy is a poet, and I always love reading novels written by poets, so I'm definitely going to check out These Silent Woods as well as Wiley Cash's new book. And that's Wednesday, October 27th from 7 to 8 Eastern Time. What about upcoming reads? Oh, my gracious. I'm super excited about a series that actually Linda, our librarian who puts all of our books that we talk about on our Goodreads shelf, recommended to me months ago. Actually, it was probably over a year ago. This is the series by Richard Osman, who's a comedian, but he's come out with a book that has been getting rave reviews called The Thursday Murder Club. It's supposed to be really good. And the second book in the series just came out called The Man Who Died Twice. 
So me being me, since there's only two books in the series, before I read The Man Who Died Twice, which I have in my hand, I'm going to read the other one, The Thursday Murder Club. But I'm excited to read both of them. And also, our buddy Jenna Blum, who is one of the brains behind A Mighty Blaze and has been a guest on The Book Cougars, has a memoir coming out called Woodrow on the Bench, which is about her relationship with her older dog who she got as a puppy kind of the end of his life where he and Jenna would hang out on a bench across the street from her apartment in Boston. It's an essay collection slash a memoir, I would say. And that comes out on October 26th. I'm looking forward to that one too. I I tend to shy away from dog memoirs, but I love her writing. So I'm going to check it out. Yeah. And she's going to be on the book Cougars soon. She's hilarious too. And her book already, I mean, I started it just a little bit just to poke around in it. And you can see there's going to be some laughs to be had. (laughs) Laughs and tears. Well, you know, the thing is, for me, like, I trust her as a writer. Mm. So I'm willing to read a memoir about a dog. Yeah, that she has written. Yeah, you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah, yeah. Because I think she'll do it with compassion and grace and humor, like I said, right? yeah. Yeah. What about you? I have one coming up. It's my book club book. It's another horror. It's actually The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. It was written in 1764, and it's considered by many people to be the first gothic novel. Hmm. Yeah, in fact, in a second edition, I think he used the word gothic in the subtitle. But this is the first to use old crumbling ruins as a setting, I guess. I haven't read it yet. And you know, the woman who is vulnerable and the mysterious stranger, I'm assuming are in there. We'll see. It's a short novel, and it is what my book club picked to read. And we're actually going to be meeting in person for the first time since the pandemic started. We're going to meet in someone's backyard and have a bonfire and talk about a scary book. Oh, how perfect. Yeah, and hopefully have s'mores. Yes. Ooh, yeah. S'mores with some candy corn on the side. (laughs) (laughs) Candy corn chaser. Well, coming up, we have our interview with Alice Henderson. She was so fun to talk to. She had this beautiful, long, flowing purple hair, which I had a lot of envy over. Purple's my favorite color. Super smart, super interesting. Just so glad that we discovered her as a writer. Yeah, you know, her books just showed up at Mm -hmm. Book Hoover's headquarters here. Yeah, we should thank William Morrow for that. Yeah, they just sent them. Somebody did. Thank you, whoever did. And the the covers are so attractive because, you know, they're outdoorsy and we both love the outdoors. So, of course, we read them. Yes. And then we're thrilled that Alice was willing to come and chat with us about them. Yeah. So enjoy that interview. We're thrilled to be talking today with author Alice Henderson. Alice is an established horror and fantasy writer who has penned novels in the fictional universes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer Angel, and Supernatural, as well as creating comics and video game material. She has written original short stories and standalone novels, including Voracious and the Skyfire Saga, a suspenseful cli-fi trilogy about a determined woman on a quest to save the planet from destruction. No small task. We first came to Alice's writing via her new mystery thriller series featuring wildlife biologist Alex Carter. Chris has raved about the first book in the series, A Solitude of Wolverines, and I'm currently reading it. As a matter of fact, I have about 25 pages to go. (laughs) The second Alex Carter novel, A Blizzard of Polar Bears, is coming out on November 9th. 
Alice is obviously a talented writer and her work as a wildlife researcher adds great realism and authority to her characters and the situations in which Alex Carter finds herself. As a wildlife researcher, Alice has conducted surveys for the presence of grizzlies, wolves, spotted owls, wolverines, jaguars, endangered bats, and more. Welcome, Alice. Thank you so much, Chris and Emily. It's a pleasure to be here. We're so excited to talk with you today. And we thought we'd jump right in and ask about the Alex Carter series. Can you tell us a little bit like your elevator pitch about the series itself? Of course, I'd be delighted. So my Alex Carter series is about a wildlife biologist who travels to different locations and encounters dangerous situations while trying to help endangered species in the field. And each book will be about a different animal. So the first one is about wolverines, and the second is about polar bears, and the one I'm writing right now is about mountain caribou. And I wanted each book to be the group name of the animal and then the animal, like a parliament of owls or murder of crows. And when I decided, okay, I'm going to do wolverines for my first book, I went to find out what their group name is and found out they're so solitary, they actually have no group name. So I had to make up one of my own. So I came up with A Solitude of Wolverines. Yeah, and that's perfect. I I love the title and I love the Wolverines too and learning about them. One of the things too is just how they keep trucking straight on, whether it's uphill or downhill, they don't alter their pace. They're just like little tanks, it sounds like. They are absolutely. When you see them moving in the wild, that's just what they move like. They're just, they're going. They might look around, but they're just trucking along. Nothing distracts them. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Alice, as I was reading the book, I was thinking back, and I promise that this story does have a purpose. I was at my daughter's orientation for kindergarten, and the kindergarten teacher read a children's book aloud to us. But as she was reading it, she was talking about these words that she was reading and saying, this is why it's so important to read to your children, because they hear words that they wouldn't necessarily hear in typical conversation. And that's how they learn language, amongst other things. As I was reading your book, I kept coming across words, not a lot, like not in a way that was frustrating, but words I didn't know. And I realized you're so smart and you know so much about what you're writing about, but yet you made it really accessible to the reader that you're on this adventure with Alex and you're with her and all in, was it hard for you to do that, you know, to come up with a way to write all this science in a way that was accessible for the more average reader? (laughs) That makes me feel really good to hear you say that you liked how I did it. It was a challenge um, because you want, there's a lot of people that read these sort of thrillers that incorporate science that really want the super crunchy technical stuff. And then there's other people that are more reading it for the suspense and they feel more bogged down by a lot of technical stuff. So I tried to walk a line between the two and make the science engaging, but not like so nerded out that people would get hung up on it and it would take them out of the narrative. That was the main thing. I didn't want people to be suddenly taken out of the narrative. Like, what is what is this? That makes me feel good that you liked how I did it. And discussing things like metapopulation comes to mind. You know, like the Wolverine lives in these very separated populations that don't genetically mix unless one Wolverine travels hundreds of miles to meet up with another Wolverine population. So the metapopulation was something I really wanted to talk about since now those pathways from one population to another are interrupted by roadways and development and habitat loss. So 
concepts like that I really wanted to bring to the book and sort of address the plight of these species in each book. Yeah, I really appreciate that so much because I'm a wildlife fan myself and concerned about the, the environment. And I came to reading mysteries as an adult through Nevada Bar. I wasn't a mystery reader and I saw her first book, The Track of the Cat, reviewed in an outdoor magazine. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good for a mystery. I'll give it a try. And I totally got hooked and started looking for similar mystery type books to read that dealt with the great outdoors like that. I know I, I read that you are a Nevada Bar fan. Did you have any kind of challenges pitching the series? Did anybody say to you, it's a little bit too much like Nevada Bar? Um, no one said that. One editor that was interested wanted me to downplay the conservation angle, which was so important to me. I didn't want to do that. But no one said that. And in fact, I am a huge Nevada Bar fan. And she read the book. She read A Solitude of Wolverines and gave me such a great quote for the cover. And I can't tell you what a cool feeling that is to have a writer that you admire and you've been reading her work for years and years, reads your book and enjoys it. I mean, that just meant so much to me. And I think with Nevada Bar, the fact that her character, Anna Pigeon's a law enforcement ranger, she's sort of in a different element than I think Alex is, who's just really isolated out in the wilderness, mainly dealing with the wildlife side of things as opposed to the law enforcement side of things. So hopefully readers will find enough difference in, in the two series to enjoy both of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to imply that it was just like the, uh, the Anna Pigeon series because it's not other than that, it's, you know, a kick-ass woman who's out there in the wilderness doing her job. Yeah. And I'm just trying to bring my jaw up from what you said. I mean, how could you possibly, these books wouldn't be these books without the conservation aspect. I'm assuming you didn't go with that editor. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't. And I tell you, it was, it was the first time I'd ever turned down an Mm -hmm. offer in my writing career. And I thought, I believe so strongly in this, I'm going to stick with my vision and I really want to address this plight of wildlife and I'm going to just pass on this offer. And it was a really tough decision, but I did it. And I'm so glad. And I landed with Harper Collins, which is just such a great house to be with. I love my editor there and the whole team there is just amazing. Yeah. And that's such an important aspect of the series. So I'm, I'm glad that you held firm and we've, we've got the books we have in our hands now. Thank you for that. Thank you. (laughs) Now, can you talk a little bit about how you got into writing? When uh, Solitude of Wolverines first showed up here at Book Cougar Studios, we were just like, oh, this is so cool. I saw the blurb by Nevada Bar. I'm like, well, that's a must read. And we kind of assumed that it was your first novel. But then when we looked at your website, you have been very prolific. And so we were curious if you could talk about your entry into writing. My very first entry I started writing really young when I was six, actually. My dad, who was also a writer, he was at the MFA Creative Writing Program in Iowa. And he upgraded to an electric typewriter from a portable typewriter and gave me this old Underwood. (laughs) I think it actually been his dad's. So I started writing stories on that when I was six, like mystery stories, detective stories, and horror and science fiction. And and he actually submitted some of those early stories for me to like Cricket Magazine and things like that. And then later on, I got my undergrad partially in writing and partially in like field zoology and biogeography and things like that. It was was a mix of the arts and sciences, my undergrad. And that's when I really started submitting in earnest and then lucked out with, I worked for George Lucas for a while and I got some Star Wars credits under my belt. And then that really, I think, helped get the Buffy the Vampire Slayer novel gigs. And then I started publishing my own original fiction, as they say, where you own your own IP with voracious. So that was really exciting. 
thrillers are my favorite thing to read. I had never brought my wildlife research world together with my writing world for some reason. Although I did write about wildlife themes and wilderness themes, that wasn't usually the main point of the books. And I decided I really wanted to do that. And with this cli-fi series you mentioned, which is that coined term for climate change fiction, it's like sci-fi, but cli-fi, I started writing about, you know, what would happen if we continued with business as usual and climate change was just left unchecked and species extinction. So that was the first time I really started to address it in earnest. And then one day I was out in Montana, actually, setting out my bioacoustic recorders to try to get some wolves. And I thought, why aren't I writing about this? I mean, I love thrillers. This is super isolated, creepy setting, you know, and uh, or it could be creepy. I love the outdoors. But it is isolated and remote, and it would be a great setting for a thriller. And I could have this lead character be a wildlife biologist, and each book would be a different species. And I just got really excited And I went back to camp that night and I started writing and I created Alex Carter and came up with the first species I would address. So that's really how I came to thrillers was, gosh, I love this genre. Why aren't I writing in this genre? On a cold, creepy night in Montana. Exactly, creeping myself out writing. It's so so sweet to hear that story because there's a nice nod to the dad in the first book, A Solitude of Wolverine. So now it makes sense because that's a little nod to your dad, I would think, in your writing background. Absolutely. He and my dad was just amazing. I really liked that. Well, with both my parents, actually, they were both very creative and musical and encouraging. So that's great. I had a question about I'm in part of the book where there's a lot of action taking place. And I was wondering, is it hard to write action adventure type scenes? That is my favorite thing to write. They're actually the easiest part. When I'm writing an Alex Carter novel, I love the action-packed sequences where she has to race from one place to another, face off against adversaries. Those are the ones that I really crank through. In fact, it's a great feeling when I sit down to write and I know an action scene's coming up because then I know I'm going to be sitting there for hours and just enjoying myself I kind of let it unfold. I'll know generally what I want to happen in the action sequence, but it's almost like I'm just chronicling it. Like you're almost on the outside seeing it, you mean? Right, exactly. Like I'll know who I want Alex to face off in this scene and what I want the end result to be. But I won't exactly know until I sit down how she's going to get from A to B. And then it's just like I'm experiencing it along Mm -hmm. with her, which is a cool feeling. So you mentioned earlier that you choose the animal that you want to focus on, and then you build the mystery around that. Can you explain that a little bit? I mean, I know that might be a little bit too deep in the woods or too organic to talk about, but I'm just kind of curious about how you layer all of these things, the animal, the mystery, the location, because the location is so entwined with the plot because the animal is there and very much a part of its environment. Oh, absolutely. With wolverines, for example, a lot of the times when I pick the species, it then determines how the story is going to go in a lot of ways. I'm picking species that I feel are in dire straits and their plight should be addressed. And in the case of wolverines, a lot of people don't even know that they're real animals, I'm finding. I hear from a lot of readers, oh, I just thought that was a Hugh Jackman character in X-Men. There's only 300 left in the lower 48, and they have no federal protection at all. Although environmentalists have been trying to get them listed on the Endangered Species Act since the 90s. They're in bad shape. So I wanted to address wolverines first. And that meant I would have to set the book probably in Montana or a pocket of Idaho, a little pocket of Washington, maybe. 
since I was in Montana, when I had inspiration for this series, I thought that won me over. So I set it in Montana, where I spent a lot of time doing research for the American pika. So I was very familiar with wolverine habitat, and I'd even actually been lucky enough to see two in the wild, which is really great. So then that determined the kind of topographical setting Alex would be, and it would be steep mountainous territory and deep snow, the kind of remote location she would be. And then with Polar Bears, the second book, I wanted to write about the Western Hudson Bay population, which is one of the subpopulations of polar bears that's not faring so well. So I wanted to address them. And then that meant I'm setting this outside Churchill, Manitoba on the ice of Hudson Bay. And then that would determine, okay, well, that means she has to travel by helicopter and go over the ice with a tranquilizer gun looking for polar bears to tag. And then that could lead to all kinds of suspense. You know, what can go wrong out on the ice or what could go wrong with the helicopter? So in a lot of ways, these animals, the animals I choose then sort of dictate or allow my imagination to say, okay, here's the settings they're in. What kind of suspenseful things could happen in these kind of remote locations and with the vehicles, like a helicopter in a blizzard of polar bears, but in the Wolverine book, she's on foot the whole time or on skis in the winter. So like what could happen there? You know, what if she gets injured while she's out there and she's on foot, you know, miles and miles away from where her face is? Yeah. Wow. And you learn so much in these books too, which is one thing I love. Like in the uh, Blizzard of Polar Bears I'm reading right now, Alex is in a helicopter. She's actually leaning out of a helicopter, strapped in, trying to tranquilize a polar bear that they're following. And there are little things like you don't want to tranquilize them too close to the shore or the ice flow because the tranquilizer could kick in and then they could fall in and drown. And I thought, wow, you know, things like you would never think of, that kind of detail that really makes your novels so realistic, like you're there and learning things. Yeah, but again, not overwhelmed by the science. Yeah, like I don't want to name call any other authors, but I did try (laughs) to read a book that was very popular and very scientific, and I just couldn't do it. You know, it was way too much detail for my brain. So I really appreciate it. Again, I did have to stop maybe four times and look something up and read the definition. I was like, oh, that's super cool. But it wasn't annoying. It was perfect. It was like, oh, I'm learning things. Not to mention the details like Chris is talking about, where it's just like, Alex is MacGyvering the shit out of things. And this is really cool. (laughs) I just love her. She's a badass. That makes me so happy to hear. (laughs) I love the comparison to MacGyver too. Um, I wanted her to be really resourceful and able to tinker and fix things and I recently rewatched that show, actually, and I had forgotten that he was not only a tinkerer, which is what he's famous for, but he was also an environmental activist and a social justice activist. His heart was really in the right place. So anytime my character is compared to him, that makes me <laughs> I would definitely say there's a nod to MacGyver. I really strove to have accurate science in, in the books, like even down to the most minutiae. I had the pleasure of attending this really cool NASA-funded writers workshop. They pick 12 writers a year and they fly you out to the University of Wyoming and house you. And during the day, you get to listen to lectures by astronomers and also science advisors for Hollywood. We'd watch movies and say, oh, this is where they got the science wrong or this is where they got it right. And it just really, I already loved reading thrillers with science in them, but it 
really fired me up to always just be sure that it's accurate. I really wanted to be sure that, especially with like stories where you're tranquilizing an animal near a water source, like you say, you know, it's being done in a safe way or an accurate yeah, way. Yeah. yeah. And that's something if the writer hadn't said that, it wouldn't have marred the story at all, but that it is included. It is just so much more vibrant and realistic. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So you were very coy when you were talking about the two books where you didn't mention the third book in the animal. Is that like under lock and key and secret, or are we allowed to know what the third book in the series is going to be about? It is not under lock and key. It's called A Ghost of Caribou, and it's about mountain caribou which are called the gray ghosts of the forest. And mountain caribou um, are now extinct in the lower 48. There was a herd, the South Selkirk herd of mountain caribou that lived in Washington state and parts of Idaho. And conservationists tried and tried to get them protected. They're vanishing due to logging. They're clear cutting old growth, which these mountain caribou rely on because they eat this lichen that grows rather high in trees. And so in the winter, they move up onto these mountains and the snowpack is so high that they can then feed off this lichen hanging from the tree. But this lichen can take more than 100 years to grow on these ancient trees. So with all of this old growth getting clear cut, their food source and habitat loss. And then on top of that, wolves use our logging roads to access the higher areas where normally they wouldn't be. Wolves mainly in this area feed on moose and deer. So like if the wolves eat a lot of the moose and deer, the moose and deer population goes down and then the wolf population goes down. So then the moose and deer population goes back up, wolf population goes back up. But now that they had access to caribou, they don't have that relationship to caribou because it's kind of an incidental prey for them. So they will feed off the caribou and the caribou population is declining, but that doesn't have any effect on the wolf population because they're still mainly feeding on moose and deer. So it got down to a desperate situation, only about 17 left, and some of them were translocated to Canada, and finally there were just two females left, and conservationists have been trying to get them listed as a distinct population segment under the Endangered Species Act with no success, and finally Canada took our last two female caribou, and then U.S. Fish and Wildlife listed them as a distinct population segment after we didn't have any left. Mm. So it's a problem that I really wanted to address. So we don't have any left here. And that makes me really sad. So that'll be what the next one's going to be about. Alex is tasked with, there's rumors that one has come down into Washington state and Alex is tasked with trying to find out if one really has, and they're returning to their former habitat. Mm. That sounds good. That sounds really good. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you, you mentioned this is depressing. Um, and that's one of the the hard parts about reading a book about endangered animals. How do you how do you stay positive and hopeful and and I guess you know just staying in this field, like what keeps you going when things seem so dire? That's such a great question. I feel compelled to help. It, it does feel hopeless a lot of the time, but in a way, I don't know what else I would do except just keep charging on and keep fighting and trying to help. And I talk to a lot of people who feel really hopeless about it. They care, but they feel so hopeless they're not doing anything. If everyone feels that way and no one's doing anything in their individual lives, then we're really in trouble. So there's so much that we can do, each of us individually, that would help. And some people feel overwhelmed or they're overworked and they feel like they don't have time. But there's quick things you can do, like 
fire off a letter to a representative. And a lot of nonprofit organizations make that so easy. You just click on their site and click on the take action link and you can just send these pre-written messages out. Um, Have like a meatless Sunday, eat less meat. That's an easy one. You could engage in citizen science. There's so many cool projects, you know, that you could do just one weekend a month or something, go out and count monarch butterflies or what have you, and help these scientists who are giving their data to legislators to make a difference. So when I'm feeling low or hopeless, I, I just do as many things as I can. And I think, okay, I'm feeling low. All right, then that means I'm going to write a letter to my representative and say, we really need climate change legislation now. It always feels good to be out in the field, of course, because then you're in nature. And I love just working with bats or whatever project I'm doing. And if you know other people that maybe aren't researchers that want to have that feeling, that there's a great website called SciStarter.org. And they have tons of citizen science projects you can contribute to all over the place. So you can get out there in nature and help with as much or little time as you have available. And I think that would make people feel better um, that they're doing something. They're taking action. It's great. Thank you for that. We'll definitely put a link to that organization in the show notes. And then I know in the back of a solitude of Wolverines, you had some organizations that need support for Wolverine research and advocacy. And we'll put those links in the show notes as well. So people can check those out. Great. That was so important to me to have that section in the back of the book, because my hope was readers would fall in love with Wolverines like I have and and help these guys out, you know, whether that's just writing a letter or encouraging the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to protect them, or even if they're feeling adventurous, there's um, winter programs where you can go out and track them in Washington State as a volunteer. Oh, very cool. Yeah, that's cool. Although I'm, I would be afraid I'd have an Alex Carter moment. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. So talking about being in the field and Alex Carter in the Wolverines novel, she's at this old abandoned lodge all alone, which, you know, is kind of creepy. Well, not kind of, it is, it creepy. is creepy. It's creepy. It's scary. Have When you're out in the field, you're alone, and have you been in situations like that? You know, a lot of people ask, oh, are you afraid of, of bears? Or are you afraid of wolves? You know, are you afraid of animals when you're out there alone? But my, my overactive imagination is always about humans. <laughs> so, yeah, I think about, like, all right, I'm in the middle of nowhere you know, in this tent. And <laughs> what if, you know, someone pulled up and, and I'm out here by myself? I can creep myself out. I, my imagination can really go in overdrive. And the abandoned ski resort where Alex is inspired me to write that because I was doing an endangered bat survey on this sanctuary. And it was the site of this old conference center from the 80s. It was actually about solar power and climate change and all this cool stuff. But it had fallen completely into ruin and the bats were roosting inside of it. And you'd walk inside this thing and I mean, there's trees growing inside of it and all the windows are shattered and the wind was howling through it. And you're walking down a corridor where there's a gaping hole in the floor (laughs) and stuff. And I thought this would be, you know, so cool if Alex was stationed in some place like this that had donated its land, but still had some of these buildings and outbuildings and and an abandoned lodge like she has to stay in. Yeah, well, it makes sense that the the humans are more scary than the animals. That's, that's, yeah. They are, are, yes. I hate to say it. (laughs) Well, I just have so much appreciation for your book and for you using fiction as a way to educate and help us understand the environment we live in. 
better and give us hope? I mean, I'm glad Chris asked that question because you want to feel hopeful and potentially helpful. And sometimes it's hard to figure that out. So thank you for providing some of both. Thank you so much, of course. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alice, for coming on and talking with us. We know a lot of our listeners have already read A Solitude of Wolverines, and they are chomping at the bit to read A Blizzard of Polar Bears. Indeed. That makes me very happy to hear. I hope everyone enjoys both of the books. And good luck with the launch of this one. And we're thrilled that you're hitting deadline for the third one, even though maybe you aren't thrilled the deadline's approaching, (laughs) but we are. (laughs) It's going pretty good. (laughs) Thanks, Alice. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.